Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Paul Reesmandel, and joining me from across the city I live in, Portland, is Eric Klein. Hello, everybody. It's always good to be here with Radio Survivor today to celebrate sound and radio, the thing we love. <laughs> and also joining us from the city of San Francisco is Jennifer Waits. Hello. It's always a pleasure. And today we're going to talk about a podcast series called Seen on Radio. And it's a production of the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. And as you'll hear, I think it's a pretty remarkable documentary series. And one which I think uniquely fits podcasting, even though... Uh, you know, it, it can also it could also be on radio. It's it, you know we, we're really at that at that weird boundary between uh, radio and podcasting, where the forms are as we often argue are very alike, and yet they have distinctions and they have distance uh, between them. And so our guest is John Bewin, who is the audio program director at the Center for Documentary Studies, and he's the host and producer of Seen on Radio. And um, I think we get into a really fascinating conversation here about uh, both this very challenging series and and really the process of making a documentary podcast. John Bewin, we're really glad to have you on the show. In particular, I mean, I'm a big fan of Seen on Radio. I think it's a very interesting show. And, you know, I came in with season two, where your topic was a very critical examination of whiteness. Uh, you know, whiteness as, as a racial category, its history and, and, and the power in this idea and ideology. And you followed up with a season on men. And right now you're doing a season on like American democracy and really deconstructing it. They're hard topics. You're very critical. And yet I think without flinching, it's very approachable. So I'd, I'd really, you, you know, you're the host and, and the producer of this show. I wonder, can you tell me what, how did it first come about? How did the idea for this show first come about? Uh, thank, well, thanks for having me, Paul and 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 everyone. Uh, it's good to be here. I um, I didn't start out on the show thinking that this was what I was going to do. That it was going to be these season long, you know, multi hour dives into deep societal historical topics. The first season, which most people don't haven't listened to and don't really know about, was a kind of a hodgepodge of pieces of, you know, one-off, pretty short episodes. Many of them featured student work from the Center for Documentary Studies. Some were some my like repurposed old work of mine or a few new things that I did. So it really started with what what people now know as seen on radio. Uh, really started with the idea of seeing white that first season, which is really officially season two that you talked about, and and it was really just the idea that that I I was okay I'm going to do this series on whiteness, um, and and I had no notion that for example also that that would be that the audience would grow or that that would put kind of put the show on the map. I just thought, you know, our small audience may or may not leave me when I do this series on whiteness. Um, but, uh, but it's just what I felt like doing. And then it really turned into um, something that really did create some buzz and brought some attention to the show and the audience grew 20 fold or something. What sort of prompted uh, that idea? And, and as, a, as a white man, 
you know, yeah. I bet that was a bit daunting to take on that topic. Yeah. So, so it had, you know, I had, I've been interested in race for decades and I've done quite a bit of reporting on race and saw myself as being interested in it and pretty smart and knowledgeable about it. But, um, also at the back of my mind, I knew that, um, I, I had known about going back a couple of decades, you know, that there were people who in, in the academy who were writing about race from the standpoint of whiteness and looking at it through that lens. And I was vaguely aware of that kind of notion, that concept. Um, and I had so, sort of thought one of these days, maybe I'll really look into that like whiteness studies thing. And so that was kind of at the, at the far back of my mind for some time. And then, of course, when I really decided to do it, it was... It was um, 2016, and um, my um, boss at the Center for Documentary Studies had uh, urged all of us on the staff to do uh, uh, anti-racism training. Mm. And at the end of 2015, beginning of 2016, I'd done this two-day workshop by the Racial Equity Institute, which uh, people who've listened to Seeing White will recognize that as it ended up being part of the project. I didn't record it then. I was just there as a as a participant, right? But it I came out of that. It was so clarifying and it had a lot of the history that you hear in Seeing White, some of it actually delivered by them. But this kind of uh I came out of it with such a kind of deeper clear, a clearer view of the ra- way that race works. And then here we are in the midst of the 2016 election campaign and Trumpism is um you know having this bizarre success and you know and it was around the time that he got the nomination in the middle of 2016 July or whatever that I decided all right I'm gonna do this whiteness series <laughs> right so then I started doing more research and reading and and you know invited people like Nell Irvin Painter and Ibram Kendi to do interviews and went back and did the Racial Equity Institute uh, training again, this time recording it for the series, and eventually decided to um, invite Chenjirai Kumanika to collaborate with me on the series. And that's that's a short version of how it all came about, or not so short version. No, it it's, it's good background. You know, it seems to me, what, what, what really struck me about, the, about this first, uh, about this season is that I think much of the time white people rely on people of color to do the heavy lifting on conversations around race, right? We look to be educated by people of color on race. And it seemed like you were taking this different turn as, as, as a white man in hosting the show, not as if you're going to educate us, but as part of what sounded like your own educational process, your own, you know, and turning to experts who come from a variety of backgrounds but not, um, you know, it seemed that that's very unusual. I mean, unusual for mm-hmm. radio, unusual for television. I mean, was that how conscious were you of that at the time? Or was it simply you were you're a radio producer? This is what you do. And this is the topic I want to ta- tackle. No, I appreciate that. And and uh, and observation. And yeah, it was really, um, you know, that becomes an important part of the of the project, right? And, and, and that I saw from the beginning that that needed, that I needed to address that and be very transparent about it and sort of make it part of the piece that, that I'm a white dude 
trying to explore whiteness so that there were there were sort of two at least two but a couple of aspects of that one is yes as you as you suggest i sort of felt like um it's okay and actually a good thing for me to do that that we shouldn't just leave it to people of color to tell the truth about racism white people need to be about this right but at the same time it's problematic uh because i'm very suspect as a as in white people are suspect with good reason, right? Our whole culture trains us not to see to, not to see whiteness, for whiteness to just be the default, and for us to think that this world we live in is is normal uh, instead of profoundly racist, and uh, and and to you know to take all these advantages that we have uh, built into our society to take them for granted, right. And to not be good at seeing it. So that, so that's one of the things mm -hmm. I acknowledge right in the first episode. Right. So, but, so that was also why that was why, um, it was important. It seemed to me to have a, a major collaborator like Chenjirai Kumanyika, in addition to turning to, uh, scholars of color to a very large extent, um, so that you know, so that I was sort of doing all those things at once to sort of say, all right, the the primary kind of investigator here is me, this white middle aged dude, but I'm going to get lots of help, and I'm going to also sort of acknowledge and yeah, and actually even to some extent kind of work with the limitations and the problems with my perspective. And I mean, to me, the show in in, in many ways, you know, has the structure and the sound and the feel of your traditional kind of public radio documentary and then but also it's more deeply personal which tends until very recently not to have been an acceptable mode really for public radio with a few notable exceptions and then bringing in uh Chinjirai, right tell me a little bit tell us a little bit more about him as your co-host yeah. and and what like what is what the role he plays and what how did you come to decide you you wanted a co-host in the, in this manner because I I think it's notable. Right. Thank you. Yeah, uh, Chenjirai is a um, he's a media scholar now teaching at Rutgers. At the time that we met and at the time that I asked him to work with me on this, he was at um, Clemson in South Carolina. He's a really interesting guy who is also a, an activist and organizer. He's a former hip hop artist. I don't know if I should say former. He might he might be offended. He's not doing it as much as he used. I mean, he mm -hmm. used to be like a, a part of a hip hop group that was traveling the world and so on, you know, years ago. And he uh, actually the first time I heard of him was. Um, I think it was, I don't know, 2014 or so. I can't remember exactly when, but he wrote an essay or wrote a piece. He was doing the uh, transom workshop up in Massachusetts, and he wrote a piece about the experience of trying to figure out how to speak, right, as a black man who, uh, anyway, it, it was kind of like the, the, he was, and it was sort of about the whiteness yeah. of the public should, radio voice. We should let, yeah, or we should let listeners know that transom is sort of this, um, uh, it's a part of the radio world, but it's like a it's it's out there on the fringes of the radio mm -hmm. world, kind of helping um, you know bring new voices onto the onto the radio and to the internet. It sort of was one of the first organizations that I was aware of in my in my radio world that that cared about sound on the internet uh, at a time where that was seen as separate from terrestrial radio. And so 
so Transom was a was a interesting place for your coworker to to be working on this project to, of finding their voice for the radio. And you were saying it's because um, there's a there's a um, a workshop. There's a certain kind of whiteness. Well, yeah. I was gonna. You're saying that there's you know public radio. Even when a person of color is speaking on public radio, there was often, especially maybe in the in in the previous decades, an expectation of of a certain kind of whiteness for their voice. Exactly. And so he was sort of wrestling with that in this piece that he wrote. And, and basically the, the people at Transom, when he raised it, they, they basically said, you should sound like yourself, go for it, right? But if he, it might have been different. I don't know if he'd been working at a public radio station somewhere, right? At a, at a, you know, at a white-run public radio. Anyway, the point was, and this kind of got a fair bit of attention. I think he was interviewed on CNN about mm-hmm. it, and it, it became a little sensation of its own. So I'd heard about him through that. And then he came to the Center for Documentary Studies, um, I think the first time, uh, anyway, and I made a point of meeting him. And we, and we actually kind of hit it off and we talked for hours and uh, in a couple of conversations that first time that he was at the center, he was actually coming down for a training at CDS that I wasn't even part of. But we met and then and then we had another couple of con- and then actually I I got him invited for for a training that I lead uh, in audio production the following summer. So we'd established kind of a, a little bit of a you know the beginnings of a friendship, and we'd really enjoyed talking to each other, and we and we both found that we could sit and sit around and talk about race for hours in particular. Um, so then when I was getting into I was planning the Seeing White series. And if you want, I can even tell the, the specific backstory of how that happened because I, um, Please, those yeah. of, pe- people who've heard this, the series will remember there's an episode called Danger, but it was the later part of the series and it's an episode in which I tell a personal story, kind of moth style, about being held up at knife point by a teenage kid in Philadelphia many years ago. And I sort of wrestle with, um, use that as a taking off point for talking about uh, the issue of violence mm-hmm. in, in racism and the way that black men, right, have been, um, have been um, accused of being, you know, racist rapists for, or, or violent rapists for centuries, when in fact, <laughs> white people have com- committed vastly more violence uh, against black people, right? Um, so, so that was sort of the, and I was writing that thing and I was going to do it on stage. This was months before the Seeing White series um, launched and as sort of a preparation or, or I thought it might be a way of, we were doing a stage show in Durham with a few podcasts and I decided I would tell this story on stage or a version of it uh, and record it and possibly use it in the, in the Seeing White series, right? So I sent the uh, script for my story to Chenjerai because I just I just felt like I told him you know I'm just a, I don't want to step in something here this is an incredibly sensitive racially loaded story and I just want to would you look at it for me <laughs> right and so he did and he said no I think you're fine if anything you might be being a little bit too hard on yourself and hmm. but I think it's okay right and 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 it was kind of in that moment I think that I decided what if I were to just involve Chenjerai as a kind of Right, as someone to kind of uh, give me backup, both in terms of the optics, to be very frank, right? That that, and this goes back to your question about a white dude doing a series on whiteness. 
is, you know, I'm going to have more kind of credibility and I'm going to, it's going to look a little better if I have a, a, a collaborator who's a person of color, but also really genuinely like to help me not screw it up and to really bring a perspective that's going to help me get it right because I won't, right? I won't, there's going to be stuff that I'm not going to see. And yeah. he was gracious enough to say, sure, uh, yeah, I'll do that. Oh, but it, but actually the conversation that you hear in the first episode where he says, well, here, I have a couple of concerns. <laughs> that was genuine, right? Where he says, the first concern I have is, are we going to look at race not as like a problem of added personal attitudes, but as a really as a question of systems and power and so on. And, and I was, I was kind of on board with that, but he, his presence really helped me um, really be consistent about that. Yeah. You have these very frank conversations, you know, it seems like you it often bookending an episode, right? Where perhaps, you know, he helps you to set up the uh, the topic and you, and you talk a little bit about it and then you bring him back and he gives you reactions that are honest, you know, and it, but it's, it's like you, it's like I'm eavesdropping very often though on a conversation between friends who are having though a conversation about very difficult topics for most people. Yes. And to varying degrees, you know, those, some, those conversations were, they weren't purely um, raw you know, I mean, we, we, we would kind of plot them out a little bit. There would be a certain kind of conversation beforehand about, well, you know, these seem to be the important things to say, and then maybe I'll say something like this, and you'll say something like that. Just, you know, so we had sort sure. of a rough yeah. sketch or bullet points in front of us. But, but nonetheless, there were, uh, there were things that happened spontaneously. Um, and that point in... I think it's the third episode, I think, where, where he says, all of a sudden he says something. He's talking about how, the, how whiteness has never, like, what's, what's the good part of whiteness? <laughs> like, right? Like, what's, yeah. when was whiteness good? And, the, and to be clear, for people who, you know, this is not, and he and I have talked about this and we've said this in front of audiences and so on. When he said that, it's not, he's not saying, when has a white person ever done anything good, right? Mm -hmm. Or what, you know. What is good about white people? That's not what he was saying. What he was saying, whiteness as a concept, right? right. And its uses in the world. It's like it's, he's not condemning all people of European descent as evil or something. He's just saying, the, the, we're talking about the concept of whiteness and how it has functioned in the world. What, when was it ever, what, what, you know? So he says that and then he says, you know, and I don't really envy you having, as a white person, having to wrestle with that. And this was not, like I was not expecting that. Right. Um, so you may remember. So what happens in that moment is we, we had, there was, there had been sort of a trajectory of that conversation that was not this really. <laughs> so I kind of said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to sort of leave that there for now and maybe we'll come back to it. And then we did another episode, a few episodes later, a shorter one that was devoted um, basically specifically to picking up on that exchange and going somewhere with it. Yeah, it was really affecting. I mean, I, I found the entire mm. series very affecting, uh, you know, in positive ways. And also, I often said devastating ways as, as, a, mm. as a white person, as a white man, uh, because of the fact that, you know, I, I went into it with, with great interest when I learned about it, you know, and I, I figured I had things to learn. <laughs> right? right. And we should, let, we should let listeners know, Paul, yeah, that yeah. we're talking on Radio Survivor today about the podcast series Seen on Radio. 
Yes, and we're talking with John Bewin, who is the host and producer of this show, as well as the audio program director at, for the uh, Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, uh, where the where the show is produced. And yeah, I mean, just that uh, you know, and, and to have this sort of very uh, unflinching, you know, is, is the word I've used, uh, you know, examination of this concept and, and, and really looking at the, the historical basis, right. Which, which, which is, which is tough. And, and I wonder, you know, why is, this was conceived of as a podcast from the very beginning, correct? Yes. Yeah. And, and so at any point, did do you think that this would be a radio show? <laughs> Well, not not a radio show, but we did make, or I did, I I produced a, a one hour radio special. Okay. Called um, "How Race Was Made," I think, mm-hmm. that we distributed through PRX, and it aired on a couple hundred public radio stations. Oh, it did. Um, That's good. Yes, yes. So, um, but no, I ne- I never had any interest in turning it into a radio, like an ongoing radio show. But yeah, we did make a. As we did with actually the following season, the men series, which is really about patriarchy, made a well, radio special out of that as well. I think I'd love now to dive in. I know this was on Paul's uh, list of important questions. Uh, at, it, we here at Radio Survivor, you know, we're we're certainly fans of the medium of podcasting, but you know, we're aware doing the work that um, sometimes in uh, at colleges and universities, podcasts are not seen as like. Uh, you know, a primary project, like the way that writing a book, I guess. And it's, we're really excited about the idea that you, you know, you could have taken on this project of studying whiteness or having a conversation about it uh, in so many other formats other than a podcast. And so can you tell us about why, why that decision to do this as, as, um, you know, time shifted radio on the internet as a podcast, um, how that informed the work and why was it a good choice to make? Well, I mean, really, the reason is that, yeah, because I'm I'm much more a radio guy than I am an academic. So so that's that would be the difference between me and actually all my my job too. my job is very unusual uh, in being at the Center for Documentary Studies, which is. So so I'm not a real academic. I do teach, but I'm I don't have a Ph.D. I don't work at a department at. In, you know, an academic department at Duke. I work at the Center for Documentary Studies as the audio program director. So before I, before I um, started making the podcast, by the way, I'm going to get my little th- clarification in here. Scene on radio is spelled S-C-E-N-E on radio for people yeah. searching for it. Um, but, uh, but before I started the podcast, I, it was still a major part of my job to produce stuff for the public radio system. Mm-hmm. So, so sp- when when the Center for Documentary Studies hired me back in 2005 or six, it was sort of doing that with the idea that it was becoming a, a you know it was becoming a production house for the public radio system, hmm. um, and then eventually when podcasting grew up and I decided you know then we, we would do the podcast. So 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 that's to the extent that I, if I understood your question, it was a little bit like you know sort of like. Um, so, so it, this is my medium, right? Mm-hmm, right? And it was more like me as a, as a, as an audio producer. And at this point, a podcaster deciding what, you know, what topic I'm going to tackle. I guess, so it I guess maybe I want to choosing the medium. Somewhere. Yeah. I guess I want to turn my question on its head then and ask it okay. again that like, was there any way in which, 
um, you know, the community that you had been hired into of academia reacted to the podcast that, um, you know, that, that sort of, um, did this, did this raise podcasts up in that community in a way like, (laughs) that's a good question. I mean, I, I, I don't know. So I'm even a little bit isolated because I, the center for documentary studies is kind of out on the literally physically, uh, you know, like across the street from the campus and it's its own little world. And because I don't move that much in this, but, but I will say that um, like any place now, like any sizable institution, Duke, I don't know how many podcasts are produced at Duke, but it's, mm-hmm. I, I could name a handful and I'm sure there are some that I don't even know about of various centers and departments and things that are going on there produce podcasts now, right? And ours is, um, there's one other uh, pretty high profile one called Everything Happens mm. by Kate Bowler mm. um, that comes out of the Divinity School and Kate is uh, um, uh, has um, terminal cancer and she's been, but she's been for years and she's, she makes a podcast about that that's, that's, that has a you know, somewhat broader audience, right, than a lot of like university niche podcasts. But seen on radio would be the other one uh, coming out of Duke that actually, you know, um, has a substantial audience in that. And that so, so I think, you know, for, among people at the university, at least some people know about it. And there are people in the, in the administration who know about it. And it's something that they're, I think, broadly speaking, proud of. And John, I guess that's I'd- what I would say about that. I'd also love to talk more about the idea of documentary. And I think it's really interesting, a center for documentary studies and how podcasts fit into that. In radio, we often think of these types of shows or podcasts as being in the public affairs realm, and we may not use the word documentary. So I'm just interested about how all that language works and how how podcasting and documentaries are understood um, within yeah. the world that you're working in. Hmm. Um, uh, it's interesting that you, it wouldn't be considered to, I mean, the, the, the way that the, now one thing I will say is that this it's, it's also a little bit funny that I found myself doing things like, like these three seasons that we've done, especially seeing white, which was not, um, as highly produced. I mean, it is, it's produced documentary what i think of as documentary audio documentary radio style it's not an interview show right um it's narrate you know written narrated and and there are some and there's some music and there's you know it's produced but it's interesting even the name of the show seen on radio uh, with the word scene s-c-e-n-e and it was designed to indicate that this show was going to be pretty heavily there's going to be lots of sound and going out in the world and recording people, which is a lot of what I've done over many years. And then seeing white really was not that very much. It was a lot of, um, you know, scholars sitting in chairs and talking about something that happened 400 years ago. Right? So that's, that's, that's a little bit of an irony. Um, but, but I still see it as, as, as documentary in the sense that we are telling true stories or stories we think are true and sort of laying out some facts but then there's also there's a there's elements of conversation and other things going on um yeah does that yeah doc 
I I saw an interesting documentary last night, so I'm thinking a lot about <laughs> the idea of documentary and that um, I think many many people have a, a stereotype about a, what what a documentary is, um, and often a documentary can include like your own perspective and personal elements, which are things that we associate with podcasts too. Right. Right. Yeah. And Paul, you alluded to that too, that element of the kind of personal. Um, right. Yeah. And, and that was one, one of the several reasons that, that I made the shift from producing for public radio shows uh, to doing a podcast was the liberation that was going to come with um, really being able to decide to what extent I wanted to bring my perspective into things. And I had done some of that, for example, in what became a Seeing White episode, the one called Little War on the Prairie, which was a piece about a, a, a war, an Indian war, and then the largest mass hanging in U.S. history, which took place in my hometown in Minnesota 150 years before. And But that was originally a, an, an hour... Uh, long piece that I made for um, uh, This American Life. And that actually was back in 2012. And that was actually a really helpful experience, both, both for me to do that, but then also um, even just the example of This American Life, and for that matter of serial, of sort of um, shows that in which the hosts or the storytellers make themselves part of the story and there's a comfort level with that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right yeah um, which is as there is not generally say on the npr news magazines yeah which so, is i think so, as is really helpful for the audience because it's you know it's it's there's there's a bit of a lie going on with all of the whatever 100 years of documentary history that the filmmaker themselves don't have a perspective or a voice or their you know their their humanness is not influencing the documentary that they're just a an all-seeing eye and giving you the ultimate truth when in fact there always is a person making a decision and so when they reveal themselves to the audience it's in a lot of ways it's a lot more honest in my opinion so i think it's it's good that you were able to um it's good i'm glad you were able to make that transition what was the reaction like then right so you mentioned you know your first season um, was more, you know, of a digest kind of format. And then you go to Seeing White and you said you saw your, your listenership, you know, go up by uh, multiple factors. Um, there must have been both positive and negative reaction in, in that, <laughs> given the subject matter of Seeing White in particular. Yeah, you know, the, the thing that, that has been most surprising to me is how little negative reaction mm. I've received. Um, and there has been some. And also, I think, honestly, I think it's related to, to white male privilege, maybe, that I, that I haven't gotten more. Mm. Because I see people, even on Twitter, women, women of color in particular, just the sheer amount of bullshit yeah. Yeah. receive just by expressing themselves about these issues, right? And... Um, and for example, when we, when we would do, and then of course the thing to understand is that a, a podcast is as purely a self-selecting audience as you're ever going to find. Mm -hmm. So that, that doesn't lend itself to maybe pissing off as many people as you might mm 
if you just put it out on commercial television or something. But even just when, you know, when we would do a Facebook ad, for example, about, about Seeing White series, which would reach beyond the, the choir, people would just look at this two-minute ad that was you know, just like a little trailer of the series with so getting the gist that this was a critical look at whiteness and they, they would fire back nasty stuff. I got some white people who were mad about that. But honestly, there hasn't been, I've heard comparatively actually very little negative in compared to a whole lot of positive, which is interesting. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned podcasting as a self-selecting audience. And I think that that's, that's a, a really more trenchant observation maybe than it seems on the surface. Uh, you know, I work professionally in podcasting. We've talked about podcasting and sometimes often talk about podcasting and its relationship to broadcast radio. And one of the things that is even easy for podcasters to forget is that your is is that self-selecting nature of the audience that there people don't stumble on your show right whereas when when you made an hour special and it was distributed to public radio stations uh, people probably stumbled on and i don't know if you ever if you heard yeah. any feedback from 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 those particular one hour specials or heard feedback from from the radio stations where they aired um yeah you know yes but i i don't remember it wasn't it wasn't vastly different it wasn't okay. either from stations or if there wasn't like oh my god how dare you i mean i really didn't get very much of that okay which you is know, interesting yeah and i mean of course it probably uh, often these one hour kind of specials don't air in prime time frankly right yes you know <clears throat> it's often more of a like a sunday afternoon kind of thing where you know it's, the listenership is differential at that time but um you know, but that exactly that, you know, in part in, in, and it cuts a couple different ways. Right. It cuts on the one hand. It means that you your audience, if especially if they're going to stick with you through a series episode after episode, they're dedicated. They're in um, and, and they will roll with you. You have you have a bit more almost buy in and permission from them, I think, to take them to places um, where maybe it's harder to do when you have to rebuild that relationship at the start of every episode because you have many yeah. more new listeners, well, but, it, but also, I mean, it limits your reach maybe as well. I, that, that I, folks, I wonder if, I mean, I, 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 you know, are there folks who you'd like to hear the show and hear this, this examination who, who, who aren't because, you know, they, right. they're not, they're not ready to opt into hearing a critical examination of, of men or of, or the concept of American democracy. I don't well, know what your I, thoughts are on if, that. I wonder if John actually even has um, has any information at all or thinks about the audience for the mm -hmm. podcast as far as uh, yeah. who is listening to seen on radio. <laughs> uh, well, I, I don't have a lot of the information I have is, of course, the, the raw numbers, right? The download yeah. numbers and so on. And then to the extent that I get it's a very it. it's a very I should just say it's a very rude question to ask any podcast producer <laughs> no it's n uh, it's not it's I not mean, it's, I'm fine it, it's a, it's very difficult to answer for any I just want to make that clear to the audience that like you right. know, if someone asked me that question I would be uh, extremely vague about my audience because I really know nothing <laughs> well it's yeah and then it's the anecdotal evidence that you get from social media and the emails that you get and whatever and what what I will say is that um there are a, like a lot of people of color who listen to our show, mm -hmm. whether it's 
representative of the broader population i i really couldn't say right because we don't know that much but but it's a substantial number and um and then of course i know there's a whole lot of white people and i think these are probably uh overwhelmingly pretty educated and also fairly progressive people who are going to be drawn to something like this um what very early on Chenjerai asked me that question even before the see, seeing white started. He said, "How do you envision the audience?" And um, and I think maybe he even said, "How do you? Who are going to be the white people who are going to be listening to this?" Mm. And I and I said, "I think are you asking me the you know the preaching to the choir question, mm. right?" And and especially by the by the end of this of that season and 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 at this point. I actually feel totally fine about that, um, about about the idea because, as you, you know, Paul, you said that you you said you know you started listening. You said I I think I probably have some things to learn here, and I think that's true. That you know, one I've one person of color that I've heard I've heard say there you know when it comes to white people and race there is no choir. Right. Well, mm. I, I want to I want to interrupt more, and say that the cliche mm. preaching to the choir often is like, well, when you're repeating easy truths that everyone already knows <laughs> what they are and it's their cliches that are easy to hear and just at all starting a conversation about whiteness, there's no such thing as an easy cliche. So because it's <laughs> yeah, not that, something that's been often repeated. That That's right. And I think, yes, or just a, even a more gentle way to say to, to say what I said is that, you know, the choir has a lot to learn mm-hmm. and, and and as I did. Right. And I think you're right, Paul, that kind of what I was trying to do was to say, I kind of I'm going on this journey as a as a more or less self-perceived, progressive, non-racist or even anti-racist white dude. But I'm going to go into some stuff that I didn't know about and I'm going to learn some stuff and come along with me. Kind of thing. Have you heard from from listeners who who really surprised you? people who you you did not expect to be in the audience who really learned something about themselves or had you know a transformative experience listening well if I, if I had a dime for every um, person who said on Twitter or in a iTunes uh, review that that seeing white was transformative or life-changing you know, which always it makes me blush a little bit when somebody uses a word like life changing. It's powerful. But, I'm sh- but I mean, many, many dozens of of people have said that. Um, I there was somebody on Twitter just the other day. This is rare. This is rare. Somebody on Twitter said, "My Republican leaning was it husband? I think that I've turned him on to your show." This was actually about the current season, mm-hmm. season four on Democracy. And he's ahead of you know he's ahead of me in the series, and he's listening and he's finding it very very interesting and and learning a lot and and having his views you know upended or I can't remember what she said, but um, you know that's that's pretty rare. But I love that I love to hear that. And that voice you heard is John Bewin. He is the host and producer of the podcast series Seen on Radio. That's S C E N E on radio and he is at the center for documentary studies at at duke university and you know we're talking 
about uh, the various seasons of of this show, which which kind of kicked off in a different way with its second season called Seeing White. And so, John, with with that topic and the response you got and, and sort of the detraction, is that did that really change your mind about that that's a direction that scene on radio should go is in this sort of season long deep explorations of, of difficult, difficult ideas in American society? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and also it was so uh, satisfying actually for me as a, as a person and as a radio maker and as a, you know, that, that um, and the response to it in the sense that, that, from listeners that um, that it was really that something about the depth of it too. That was about an eight-hour series, and I had a long, long background as a public radio producer, making one-hour specials and things like that, and feeling like I was really lucky because I got to work in quote-unquote long form and make a work on for six months on a documentary that would be a one-hour radio special i worked for american radio works for example for mm -hmm. years doing that um and but this was on a different scale again right so we, we do 14 part series that's a total of eight hours or so and and um and it was fun i mean you know i mean it's a maybe a weird word but uh but it's my idea of fun let's put it that way yeah um, i wonder can you tell the listeners a little bit, because this is one of my personal obsessions that I think um, a lot of people, uh, I, I just want an audience to hear somebody talk about how much work goes into um, an hour of radio documentary. But I think it's also interesting to talk about maybe how, well, I'd love to hear how you approach scene on radio as, you know, one episode, how much, you know, how you, how you divide your hours of work uh, mm -hmm. to create a documentary. Um, and then I guess my follow-up question would be like, if you did this as a podcast, um, or as an, uh, um, more traditionally as podcasts are known, which, you know, you, you put, you put four hours of work into a one hour radio show, not, um, not a hundred hours of work or a thousand hours of work. Um, how would that change your project? But let's start first with, um, how, yeah. tell the listeners about how you do documentary podcast work, how you make a documentary radio series. I really appreciate the question, actually, uh, because yeah, I, I I often think people can't have no idea, or can't couldn't possibly imagine. But yeah, well, maybe when I'll you do the work, when you do the work well, it just appears in front of their ears as if it as if it had come out of people's mouths. You know, yeah. it, it sounds like someone talking to you, which only takes an hour. But right. yeah, right, just, <laughs> well, you did your job. Well, uh, I'll answer the question by talking about the current season. Um, yeah. Season four, The Land That Never Has Been Yet. And actually this one, so I've been sort of learning. With Seeing White, I, I didn't give myself enough of a running start. And the episodes were not made when we put out the first one. And although a number of the interviews were in hand. And it was just a mad dash then for the rest of the season to put out an episode. I, we'd put them out every other week. Were you working alone to, or did you have a staff? No, I'm pretty much working alone. I'm I'm a pretty pretty much a one person operation except for you know in the role of a collaborator like Chenjerai or Celeste Headley in the men series. Um, but I I conceive, research, report, record, write, <laughs> produce, mix. 
this podcast, right? So, so let's talk about uh, the, the, the current season. I learned from the previous two to give myself more time and to not commit myself to starting the series until I had really a lot of the reporting in hand and the recording in hand and a basic plan and all that, right? And, and actually a few episodes produced and done, ready to go before. And we're still putting them out every other week. But basically, I started working at the beginning of 2019, having finished the men's season in, in December 2018. I started doing research and reading and starting to contact people to do interviews at, at the beginning of 2019. So the entire calendar year of 2019, and this was my main job. I teach, but that only takes a fraction of my time. Uh, my main job for a calendar year was doing that research, figuring out, reading a ton, because I'm not a historian. I had to kind of learn a whole lot in order to make all these decisions about what stories from 240 years of American history am I going to tell? How am I going to tell them? Who are the people who can tell them? Who are the amazing scholars out there who've done this kind of recent um, revisionist, if you like, history that kind of retells and updates the story of American democracy? And can I get them to talk to me? And oftentimes it takes several months mm. to, um, from the time that you first contact a, a, a rock star academic um, to the time that you can get them on, <laughs> you know, in a studio or whatever. Because oftentimes they'll just say, oh, I couldn't possibly do this before the summer or, you know, whatever, something like that, right? Um, and and so, so by the end of 2019, I've spent an entire year, I had... Um, I had pretty much plotted out the dozen episodes. Ginger, I was on board. My editor, Loretta Williams. We'd had a number of conversations and meetings, and and I had about three and moving toward four episodes that were pretty much pr written and produced. Um, several of them, more or less, in the can, you could say. But then the rest of them, not you know, sort of planned and a bunch of the interviews done, but some with interviews still to be done. And um, so another way of saying it is that for this 12-part series, which again, this will, this one looks like it's going to probably be about 10 hours, 12 episodes, I will have spent, and it's going to wrap up in June, I will have spent pretty much a year and a half of my life full-time. Wow. Wow. And then it, and, at, some, at a certain point, the entire episode is, I'm assuming, um, essentially down on paper, right? It's you've you've created a, a document that a the listener won't see. But yeah, the script is essentially a novella length piece of of writing that you've edited and scripted, and it's I, it's something that I found really exciting when I learned about radio oh so many years ago. That in that sometimes it's entirely it's entirely written down, even the parts where. Other yeah. people are saying things to you that at in the moment when they're recorded may have been a surprise, but you get to take those those sentences and and put them into what is essentially, you know, a, a nonfiction book. Yes, and we post transcripts. And so, uh, uh, you know, I can tell, I mean, each one of these episodes these days, you know, it's like seven, eight, up to close to 10,000 words. Yeah. Uh, and doing a dozen of those. Which is basically so, like a, a, a healthy magazine article, right? Like mm -hmm. kind of the, the yeah. Way. And that's actually a, a off, even before doing this kind of, these kind of in-depth podcast series, 
I, I've long sort of thought of even longer form radio documentary work as being a little bit like, you know, an Atlantic or New Yorker, you know, longer form reportage kind of, kind of work in, in audio form. So it's a dozen of those. <laughs> and I guess, I mean, we, we went down this road because I, I have a personal desire to talk about how much work a documentary uh, is to make. What if, like, um, do you think this could, would you enjoy yourself or would this work be worthwhile if you were working on a podcast that um, was not as well resourced? If you had to just get it done oh. uh, as, a, as, as an additional project to your day job. Uh, trying to do an exploration like this into such a serious topic, like I'm assuming you would, you would just, uh, you would host, you would post onto your feed the uh, the entire unedited hour long interview with each of your guests. Um, what would be lost? What would be gained? Yeah, well, I think a, a, for me, a lot would a lot would be lost because uh, you know I like the um, I like the fact that you can make a 45 or 50 minute or, you know, one hour, uh, episode that, that is really well, uh, I hope, you know, really well organized and sort of builds, um, you know, that there's an argument that's built and you're laying out the evidence along the way through stories and through, and you have these really smart people providing context and analysis and, and so, um, I don't know, it's, it's, I feel very lucky to get to do it. And mm -hmm. I recognize how, how privileged I am in that, especially for, for it to be my paid job to do it. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I, I, I don't know how else to answer the question yeah. except to I, say I guess that I'm, I, I like I'll, that I can do, I can do it this I'll way. I'll get off of this, uh. Of, of this one track that I'm on, but I have this, when, whenever I've had the privilege of making some kind of documentary, I've often also wondered like, should I just share this entire interview with my mm -hmm. audience? And especially now that the internet, you know, there was 25 years ago, you know, you, you there really wasn't an opportunity in to, to share that material. But now, now when you make a documentary, you know, you could, you could give the whole thing away you can to show audience. your work. Yeah. Is, but, um, <laughs> Has there ever been a temptation to do that? Like a second stream of just the raw, the raw stuff, or is, or is there a reason to sort of keep it, um, keep it in the archives as it were? Yeah, no, I have thought about it. And you know what, honestly, I think probably the most honest answer to why I haven't done it is that, that that would be more work. Yeah. <laughs> you, you wouldn't want to just, <laughs> right. Yeah, just people and, Cause you still have to clean it up a little bit. Right. Yeah. You know, and right. And there may be things that are off the record. It's, you know, et cetera. And the, the trade-off right? that, yeah. I mean, uh, you think about somebody like, I think some of the PBS shows in Frontline or American Experience, I think they do that sometimes, but they have these big staffs and they can, yeah. you know, yeah. have a, have somebody, you know, produce that version that they slap up. So, so I, it's not, I've, I don't have some philosophical reason for wanting to not share those things. It's just more like the trade-off of, what the audience would get and what I see the value of it versus the fact that I would actually have to do it. And, um, and all of this, I mean, is funded as part of your day job. So the center uh, for Dec documentary studies at Duke university is happy for you to, to produce this and to release this is, is sort of, I guess a public service. It, I mean, in some ways it parallels uh, the kind of research output 
of somebody who is a traditional faculty member who writes uh, journal articles and books, right? Again, overall for 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 public benefit, ultimately is is the idea, and 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 that that's your role there at, at the center. Yes, uh, uh, at the center, we 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 like to say that we we teach, present, and produce documentary work, and it's a it's an unusual organization. We sort of see ourselves, or sometimes are described as a kind of flagship institution of its kind in the country, being attached to a university, but also being kind of independent or also being sort of a nonprofit community center that does a variety mm-hmm. of things. So, so yeah, we teach courses, but we also publish books and we have, we, there's a um, documentary film festival that CDS does called the full frame film festival. So this is, it's really, um, yeah, a kind of celebration of, of documentary work. And this is an instance where the institution actually makes this thing and puts it out into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also one of the kind of the more visible things that CDS does. So I think as far as I can tell, my bosses are pretty happy with me. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happy that they're happy. Um, before we wrap <laughs> up, John Bewin, uh, you're the host and producer of Seen on Radio. Um, we're, you're in the midst of the release of your fourth season. I want to give you an opportunity to quickly uh, tell our listeners about it and, and give them incentive to go uh, add it to their mm-hmm. podcast queue. Thank you. Yeah, the, the season four, as, as you said at the beginning, at the title of this, this season is The Land That Never Has Been Yet, which is kind of a mouthful, but it's a slice of a Langston Hughes poem. And the point, the, the season is about democracy in the United States, past and present. And we and there's a lot of history. We go back to the founding of the country and look at to what extent um, this common story that we tell ourselves that you know, this is this country was founded, that, that we broke away from the British Empire so that we could create the world's greatest democracy. And that's what we did. You know, that that's, let's just put it, let's, let's say that we complicate, or you could just say we completely upend that. Um, <laughs> you do. <laughs> that, that version of what was really going on. Um, and then we sort of move through key points in, in U.S. history to sort of and one thing I, I guess that, that I could say to kind of sum it up is, um, you know, a recurring theme is is to what extent um, that there's there seems to have always been a tension between kind of capitalist um, growth and profit making by a few by the few in particular, and that being intention as a priority that being intention with real democracy and that. Through most of U.S. history, the people with the most power have chosen one over the other. <laughs> Let's yes. put it that way. Well, folks, and can we're fi- not nearly the great democracy that we have been telling <laughs> ourselves we are. And and those this will not be jarring comments for I think most uh, listeners of Radio Survivor, whether as the podcaster yeah. on their local community radio station or college station. John <laughs> Bewin, uh, thank you again for joining us on Radio Survivor. I know folks can hear Scene on Radio S C E N E on Radio, mm-hmm. uh, wherever they can find podcasts from Apple Podcasts to Stitcher to Spotify. Um, it's yeah. there, and we'll have uh, more links in our show notes at RadioSurvivor.com. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, I want to thank John Bewin again for being a guest on today's Radio Survivor. John is, uh, you know, was very generous with his time, considering that he's in the midst of producing 
that podcast series, that documentary series. And uh, I hope you enjoyed as much as I did uh, listening to someone who who puts as many hours into their into their show, uh, just how hard that work is to process all of that voice, all of that tape, uh, to put all those words into context. And so I thank John for joining us on our podcast today. Uh, we don't work nearly as hard <laughs> to get an hour, to get an hour of Radio we Survivor don't. out. And, um, you know, that's, that's, that's the nature of the business, but we do work hard. Uh, all three of us right. work very hard. And Eric, you do, you, you take it's these just, episodes uh, and you help shape them. And, and, you know, I think it's good for six people hours to know. is just different. Yeah. Six hours is different than a thousand. Right. That's all. It, it totally <laughs> is. But you know, that we, that we do edit, uh, and that often interviews yeah, are longer than what you hear. And uh, there are flubs and retakes and recontextualizations. The real work is being going on, even though we spend a lot of our time talking into microphones. Um, it is not just simply live to tape uh, week after week. Uh, so we do thank you, Eric, for that work. Jennifer, I appreciate uh, you joining us on this show and all the all the work you do in helping to produce and, and arrange guests and and, yeah, and that was also us, that was a great uh, that was a great thing that John. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm he, sorry, to interrupt. Yeah, I'm glad he Go pointed ahead. that out. All the um, preparation that goes into doing interviews, where there's a lot of research and writing questions yeah. and conceptualizing, and even just well, and conceptualizing then, who your guests are. Yeah, and then the labor, the hidden labor of making a radio program. That was my favorite part. Is that it? Sometimes just takes countless hours to schedule mm -hmm. <laughs> to get the logistics of scheduling your guests interview it's and true. uh and how do you how do you account for that especially when some guests are ready to go uh, after one email <laughs> so so you can never know how as a producer uh just how many hours you're, you'll need to devote to pinning down your guests and their schedule and getting the logistics of the interview lined up well, this is a good moment to tell you that Radio Survivor is a listener and reader-supported enterprise. To learn more about how you can help us keep doing the work we do, please go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. And, of course, if you have any comments about today's program, we always want to hear them. We, we pretty much write back every single time. So drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. You can also get at us on Twitter or on Facebook. And, of course, our website is radiosurvivor.com. Put slash podcast. You can get to the show notes where you can find links to all the things that we've talked about on today's program. We hope that you both listen to this program. And if you're listening as a podcast, please subscribe you know, which free using whatever platform you use. You can find us on Stitcher, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Pandora, pretty much every podcast listening application you can find Radio Survivor. If you subscribe to us there, you never miss an episode. So thank you everyone for spending another hour with us. Mm -hmm.